time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. This is going to be an interesting two weeks. If you notice, I sound a little different. It's, um, well, because I'm using a travel kit. That's right. I'm on the road. Although I'm back in the studio tomorrow. Friday will probably be a best of program. And next week, I'm going to be at the Reveal Now conference. So uh, we're testing out our new equipment. Actually, it's not really new equipment. It's it's just different equipment. Uh, different equipment for recording to uh, to basically bring you the program while I'm traveling and on the road. Because I just love lugging um, audio equipment with me everywhere I go. <laughs> so uh, the reason uh, everything sounds just a little bit different is just because, well, I'm using a different microphone, a different mixing board, and a uh, slightly different way of doing things. But uh, absolutely committed to bringing you guys fighting for the faith uh, wherever and whenever I possibly can. And there's no reason why I can't travel with this kit so uh, the hope is next week i'll be able to bring you some updates from willow creek from the reveal now conference and in the meantime uh you know you're catching me on the back end of a of a trip that i took to the st louis area actually uh todd wilkin was in uh is was installed at uh, trinity Millstot, illinois and i attended his installation service which was really really neat and uh, so you're, I'm on traveling home, and uh, you are listening to me with all the ambient noise that goes along with not recording in my normal atmosphere. <laughs> anyway, we've got a good show for you lined up today. We There's lots of stuff that we could be talking about. First of all, we'll dive into a little bit of listener email. And uh, got a email regarding more than one i actually got a few emails regarding patricia king's uh the review that we did of her little statements regarding the bar is open and the wine cellar of heaven is she apparently travels to the wine cellar of heaven often and uh yeah i mean we should all be jealous i mean really we should all be really 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 jealous that we don't get to travel to the wine cellar of heaven too and get to imbibe on the lord's uh wines because uh, isn't that what the Bible says everybody gets to do? Mm-hmm. Anyway, <clears throat> got an email here from Chuck. Chuck writes, he says, uh, a couple things uh, struck me as I listened to Patricia King on Friday's episode. It seemed like she, as well as Paula White and others of these prophetic types, tend to just ramble. Words and phrases are just strung together and spewed out. Some of it may sometimes make some kind of sense, this is third order monkey typing. <laughs> third order monkey typing. Think of the old mind experiment of monkeys randomly punching letters uh, to eventually produce Shakespeare. Uh, this is the same thing, in my humble opinion, uh, without biblical sounding phrases. And uh, her teaching, uh, her teaching about Abraham's prosperity. John Calvin in his Institutes has a pair of chapters on the similarities between the Old Testament and the new, uh, and the new, uh, and the differences. Apparently, there was someone in Calvin's time teaching that the Jews in the Old Testament were only promised earthly blessings. Calvin in these chapters does exhaustively, goes exhaustively through Abraham's life, the lives of the patriarchs, David's life, etc., showing that their lives 
were often wretched, uh, wretched and troubled, and that they did not get the promised blessings if that blessing is a physical blessing of the world of worldly wealth. The point being that the promised blessing uh, were thus not this worldly, uh, as per also Hebrews 11. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one, a future and spiritual. In this, in this day, this would serve as a polemic against both dispensationalism with its rigid distinction between Israel and the church, instead of continuity, and the prosperity preachers. And he says, uh, also, third point, how can you stand to listen to this stuff? It's like trying to uh, get nourishment from Snickers bars and strychnine. Um, I think, actually, Snickers bars have some nutritional value, don't they? <laughs> Not so so sure about the strychnine, though. All right. Roxy writes, she says, Ew! Chris, I could hardly stand hearing Patricia King's voice when she went into her possessed mode. It was truly demonic. I had to listen to Paul a Paul Washer sermon after that. No way was I going to sleep with that ungodly anointing ringing in my ears. Thank you for stopping the tape and exposing each delusion, then countering it with the truth of God's word. You're welcome, Roxy. Roxy, that's what we do here at Fighting for the Faith. We equip God's sheep and we shoot wolves. Because uh, that's my new mission statement. <laughs> okay, Brandon writes, and this is an important uh, email here. He he says, hey, Chris, I just started listening to your show after my friend told me about your podcast, and I really appreciate what you're doing. One of my biggest struggles with people that are hostile to Christianity is that they're con- they constantly attempt to disprove the Bible by pulling verses from Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John and showing me small discrepancies in the stories. Things like how many angels were at Jesus' tomb or who did Jesus appear to first after his resurrection. What is the best way to deal with these people? Brandon, this is a good question, and this is one that everybody really needs to pay attention to here. And uh, many people try to disprove the Bible using these alleged discrepancies all the time. And the logic goes something like this. Well, uh, you know, one one gospel account has two angels there. Another gospel account only has one angel there. So, uh, therefore, because we can't reconcile the two differences, that means Jesus never existed, and the Bible's not true. So that's that's how the logic works in these types of arguments. And the church has known about these discrepancies from the beginning. But uh, let me give you a great example that uh, one that people can relate to. If you've seen the movie Vantage Point, there this was out at probably the beginning of the summer, or maybe it was a spring movie now. I can't remember because I'm getting old. But Vantage Point has a very interesting, it's a very interesting movie in that um, it goes through the same event many different times, each shown from a different vantage point. From the vantage point, uh, you know, so it, it's it's a movie that apparently is about an an attempted assassination on the president of the United States when he's outside of the country. And so uh, one of the vantage points that it shows is from the newscasters. Another vantage point is from somebody who um, was on the security detail for the president. And then another vantage point was from one of the alleged terrorists. And so what happens is is that um, each time you look at the – you look at this event from a different vantage point – you get more incomplete information. But the thing is is that one person might have saw one set of things and another person might have saw another set of things. And if you were to just take their stories and say, well, they contradict each other, therefore the, 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 it never happened, that's ridiculous. That's not how things work. 
Instead, what happened is, is that uh, you, you take a look at these things, and you understand that uh, the gospel writers, especially uh, John and Matthew and uh, Mark, you know, they are telling their story the way they saw the evidence, the way they experienced it, the way it occurred to them from their vantage point. And so what happens is is that um, it, it all comes down to with these little discrepancies, you know, th- they're trying to be faithful to what they remember and what they heard. And in situations like that, you don't look for the little discrepancies to try to disprove the event. That Actually, that logic doesn't make any sense because you look, what, what do they all agree upon? That they are eyewitnesses to the life of Jesus Christ. The fact that they didn't try to smooth over their differences of opinion or their different perspectives from their vantage point, from their memory, is actually works in favor of the Bible. And the reason it works in favor of the Bible is because you know there's no collusion going on. It's very clear that because we have these different eyewitness testimonies regarding what Jesus said and what he did, that it, this was not some story that was fabricated in, in the second century by a bunch of drunken monks. And uh, what I would also recommend doing here, Brandon, is doing a little bit of homework. There's actually a couple of very good books that all Christians who are serious about Bible study and about apologetics really need to own. And uh, the first book is a book called Alleged Discrepancies of the Bible. It's called Alleged Discrepancies of the Bible. And the author is a gentleman by the name of John Haley. That's H-A-L-E-Y. I'll put a link up to it at fightingforthefaith.com so that you can uh, that you can just go to it quickly. It's a it's a very important book. Now this book's old. It's been around for a long time. And uh, Haley, that at the part the best part about Haley's book is that he he takes all of the different types of discrepancies that are out there, and he boils them down to ten specific types. And um and and he deals with a lot of the uh, with a lot of the thornier uh, discrepancies straight up. Another really good book for you to own is uh, called the Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties by Gleason Archer. The Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties. Again, I'll put a link to this at fightingforthefaith.com. And uh, the the idea there is these are great resources. Bible scholars for you know millennia now have written about, dealt with you know skeptics who basically say, "Hey, we can't believe your story because uh, we don't know how many angels were at the uh, were at the tomb." You know, the the reality is is that you can even take. Uh, you take eyewitness testimony in court, and which is really what we're dealing with here. This uh, the, the gospels boil down to eyewitness testimony, and you put you apply the same kind of scrutiny that you would to a legal case. And what you find what you, what you find constantly in legal ca- cases in court battles is that uh, you know when an event has happened and there's multiple witnesses to the event or uh, the crime. Um, they try to get as much many different eyewitness testimony as possible, even if the eyewitness testimony contradicts on certain details. Again, the important thing is is, is what what's in agreement, and understanding that uh, people again are are giving their testimony from their vantage point. So, Brandon, I hope that that helps you out, and uh, that uh, that really is the best advice that I can get you. Uh, the, the simple answer is you know you look at uh, what they said. Um, concerning eyewitness testimony, the fact they didn't try to smooth things over, they're all writing from their own vantage point, and then get these books by uh, Archer and Haley. They will definitely help you out. All right. It's weird not being in the studio, not hearing my own... You do the the show um, using the same equipment, and you get out on the road and you get this different equipment. It sounds different. 
even in my own ear, it sounds different. So, yeah, I'm struggling with these new sounds. <laughs> All right, we've got a very interesting news story that we need to play here. Um, this is from the Christian Newswire. Headline, churches nationwide respond to weakening, weakening economy by closing their doors on Sunday to serve their communities. Yeah, you heard that right. Churches nationwide respond to weakening economy by closing their doors on Sunday to serve their communities. This is from Faith in Action. A groundbreaking ministry finds momentum in communities. Uh, More needs to be done. Many families and children still in need, says World Vision. Oh, man. I think I should have these people on my show. Grand Rapids, Michigan, October 6th, from the Christian Newswire. As the worsening economy continues to make life difficult for families across the country, Churches are putting their faith into action this Sunday, October 12th, by doing something radical. This year, more than 300 churches nationwide will close their doors to help serve their neighbors in need. Some 36,000 Americans are now involved in this growing movement. Since September 2007, Faith in Action has been the most radical ministry in today's church by advocating that churches should cancel Sunday services, close their doors, and be the church <clears throat> by leading local community service projects. The Faith in Action program bridges the, the gap between families who could use a helping hand this year and churches who have the extra hands to offer help. Quote, For far too long, the American church has remained stuck inside the walls of the sanctuary each week. We walk about serving others like Christ served the church, but too many on the outside say that not enough churches embody that message. We can no longer look away in indifference. Faith in Action helps churches take this message to their communities, says Steve Haas, vice president at World Vision. Faith in Action culminates in in a community outreach Sunday, where regular services are canceled and congregations do service projects in and with their local community. The program also helps Christians invite members of their community to join in serving together. Three leading Christian organizations, World Vision, uh, Outreach, and Zondervan, are behind Faith in Action. For additional information on this program, log on to putyourfaithinaction.org. So we're supposed to stop. We're supposed to be the church, right? Mm-hmm. I've got a problem with this, and I've got a pretty big problem with this because it's a false dichotomy, and this is not what the scriptures teach. Let me give you an example from God's word, okay? And where the apostles had the opportunity to um, be the church. This is ridiculous. Okay, here we go. Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1, it says that now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, and these are Greeks, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Okay? So here's what's happening here in the, you know, the early Christian church. There was a complaint that arose regarding the daily distribution of food and resources for the widows, the the Greek widows and the Hebrew widows. And so the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint 
to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Did you catch that? So the disciples had this opportunity to stop doing church and to be the church, right? And what did they say instead? They're going to appoint people to do the, the daily distribution work to the widows. Understand who we're talking about here. These are people in their community, within the Christian community, who have a very valid need. In fact, it was so valid that there was it required quite a bit of resources for a daily distribution. But the disciples didn't say, well, we're going to stop church here. We've got, we got to stop preaching God's word so that we can be the church. That's not what they said at all. In fact, verse 2, let me read it again. It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God in order to serve tables. In verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Well, that doesn't sound right. I thought we're supposed to be the church. You know, I think this is a terrible thing. I've been to their website, seen that this is a big, uh, this is another one of those campaign things like the 40 Days of Purpose or the uh, Live Like You Were Dying campaign. This, uh, the faith into action, it sounds so reasonable. It sounds like, oh, wow. But what it really suffers from is a complete misunderstanding it, it, uh, biblically of what the church is. The, being the church, the, the church is those who are called out. What does the church do? Well, let me read Acts 2.42 again for you so that we, you know, we understand really what are the hallmarks of the church. Here's what it says. It says, And they, this is the early church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This is what the church does. Now, granted, the church also takes care of the needs of its own. They were taking care of widows and the poor, and these are good things for us to do. But you don't pit them against each other. You don't pit the, the ministry of God's word against going out and serving your community. It is not an either or. In fact, um, in logic, we call that a bifurcation fallacy. Bifurcation fallacy basically means you take it and you split it and you pit two things against each other. This is not an either or proposition. The church is to be the church. Yes. And when is the church the church? Well, according to God's word, the church is the church when we get together, devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. That's those are the primary hallmarks, the primary marks of the church. The church is not first and foremost a community outreach organization in the sense of feeding the poor and so and taking care of social problems. But this is this do goodism that's taken over the church. Basically, this mentality makes it so that the idea of going to church to hear God's word somehow is wrong. Somehow it's wrong-headed or somehow it's selfish. No, it's not. That's what the church does. And then as a fruit of our faith, we should reach out to the poor and to the widows and to the people in our community and take care of their needs. It's not an either-or. It's a both-and. And what these guys are doing, uh, you know, I think it's wrong. Absolutely think it's wrong. It's not wrong to reach out to the poor, but what it is wrong to do is to pit the ministry of the word against community outreach. The two go hand in hand. They are not against each other. Anyway, all right, moving along here. <clears throat> We're going to do a sermon review today. And uh, this is a gentleman that we have reviewed in the past. And uh, his name is David Foster. And David Foster, he's got a church out in Tennessee somewhere, and uh, he's just started an eight-week sermon series called 
Mastering My Emotional Monsters. Mastering My Emotional Monsters. Okay. Can't wait to get into this one. This will be very interesting. Um, I, I have this up at the uh, Museum of Idolatry. And if you want to take a look at it, it's uh, it's still on the homepage at the Museum of Idolatry. And um, he, he basically, here's what I said. Forget about the separation of church and state. The time has come for God's people to fight for the separation of church and pop psychology. Church is not a group therapy session. And any pastor who turns God's house into a pop psychology session is actually in rebellion to Christ. Christian pastors are commanded to feed Christ's sheep with the word of God and if you would like to know what the Bible says about that, then uh, go back and listen to what I said in a previous edition of Fighting for the Faith. And because uh, I, I covered this, you know, it's the uh, Feed God's Sheep Bible Study. That's the name of the episode, the Feed God's Sheep Bible Study. Well, here we got an interesting one because I I get the feeling after listening to the sermon that, uh, <laughs> that David Foster is aware of uh, his critics and so he, he's going to get into God's word really early. We're actually going to hear the Bible pretty quick in his sermon, but that's not the problem. The problem lies in the fact that he heads off into a different direction. So what we're going to do here is we're going to dive into David Foster's sermon, and we'll, we'll critique it along the way. And my big problem here is, is that um, he's really not exegeting God's word. Instead, what he's trying to do is to be helpful and give people information that he thinks will help them and make their life better. The problem is, is that the information that he's given, giving them is really not biblical information. He's not really giving them God's word. He's proof texted a, you know, some basic pop psychology principles, and it's important for you to uh, to hear what he's done here. So let's dive into uh, the very first episode, if you would, of the Mastering My Emotional Monsters. Love the alliteration there. Mastering My Emotional Monsters by uh, <clears throat> David Foster of The Gathering. We're beginning a brand new series this morning called Mastering My Emotional Monsters. What to do when you don't feel the way you want to. In this eight-week series, we're going to talk about the big monster emotions. Depression, feeling desperate, feeling alone, those kinds of emotions. But, but, but to start this series, what we, I think, have to understand, if we're ever going to gain on our demons, is to understand how we are made. Why we are so emotional beings. Why a super intelligent person who knows better can do something really stupid. Even though they have the facts and information to act on. We are emotional beings. And that starts with understanding two things. That God created us persons in his image. Persons, not animals. My dog, Cooper, has it made. She has no worries. Where is the food and where do I poop? That's it. That's all she needs. Yeah, just what I need to hear in a sermon is um, about your dog's poop. And life is good. Anyone who's got food or take her out is her very new best friend. We're not that way, are we? Now, well, we may want those things, but we want a few more things than that. 
Oh, we're not animals. We're persons. We were created living beings. This is what the scriptures say. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils and the breath of life, and the man became a living, in Hebrew is the word nephesh, a living person, a living being. And the Bible says that God created us as image bearers of God. All right, we'll stop right there for a second. What he's saying is right. This is true. God made us as image bearers, and he's reading from uh, the Genesis account. So he's in, like, chapter 3 of Genesis talking about uh, mankind being made. Now, here's my question for you. Uh, as you read through Genesis, um, can you find any support for the rest of the stuff that he's going to be saying here? At, at this point, he's basically saying God created us as image bearers, and he's going to draw some conclusions from that and then dive into uh, pop psychology talk. Pop psychology. Let, let, let's listen. Now, what does that mean? It means three simple things. We all know them, live with them every single day, can't escape them, always there. We are thinking, acting, feeling beings. We have three capacities to think with our mind and form views and opinions to act, to make choices, volition and will, and to feel those wonderful feelings. And when the feelings are right, life is good. That's why watching football is so uh, Okay, hang on a second here. So at this point, uh, he's, he's given us an obligatory Bible verse, basically saying God created us. And then he talks about three different spheres that, uh, that we do. It's, it's thinking, acting, and feeling. Okay. Um, can you give us a chapter and verse on that, Pastor Foster? I'm telling you what. We have a financial crisis brought on by the fact, and hear it, write this down. You won't hear this anywhere else. Brought on by the fact that Vandy is 4-0. <laughs> that is absolutely the problem with the world. Oh, okay. I, don't know. I guess Vandy is a football team or some kind of a sports team. I, I don't know. Five... Five and oh, okay, so whatever. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm serious. I'm happy they're five and oh, but some kind of crisis in the world has to arise to balance out the inequity, don't you think? <laughs> whatever. But it is great being five and oh, and after this afternoon, we're going to have two big, big league football teams, five and oh. Five and up, and Woo-hoo. it feels good. You don't go, you know, you go to football and sit and go. I mean, you know, unless you don't like football and you go because you're dating some guy you're trying to impress, right? Okay, so he went from actually reading God's word to talking about a local sports team. Okay, I'm not sure what the local sports team has to do with God's word. We're emotional beings. Now, here's a question I want to ask you. There is an order in how this image-bearing capacity has to be experienced and lived. So let me ask you this question. Uh, okay, so he's saying that there, the, 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 he's making some claims about this. Let's see if he backs this up from the Bible or if we, we're just getting principles from anywhere. Which are you? Are you, would you say, I am a feeling, acting, thinking person? Which makes you a... Reactor. You live on the basis of your emotions. 
You get up every day and check how you feel to determine how you're going to do. These are the kind of people who will get married. Here's the thing you need to understand about marriage. In this country, we are wonderful at getting married. We stink at being married. And so someone goes through this euphoria of getting married and then they wake up, you know, now they are married and they look at that person and say, oh my God, what have I done? Did he just use God's name in vain? Hmm. And they don't feel, I, I wish I had a dollar for everyone who says, you know, I just don't feel like I love my wife. You know, well, who said it was about feeling? Well, if you are a feeling, acting, thinking individual, you make your decisions, basically. Your emotions lead. Here's the deal. Emotions are wonderful servants, terrible masters. Great. Uh, that's a wonderful proverb. Um, it, but is that in the book of Proverbs? Are you? Where is this in the Bible, Pastor Foster? Um, I mean, this is great and all, but... Aren't you supposed to be preaching God's word? I mean, feed my sheep, you know, that kind of stuff. Hmm. Maybe I'm just being um, unloving and judgmental. All right. Um, we're going to take a real quick break. We'll be right back. This is uh, Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebrew, and we're on the road. <laughs> I'm out of, I'm out of, a fish out of water. I'm not used to the setting, but that's okay. We'll be right back. If you want to email me, while I'm on the road, you can. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talk back at fightingforthefaith.com, and we will be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, cannon photo written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. My local Christian bookstore just sells Jesus schlock. Where can I find good material? We at NewReformationPress.com are committed to providing a hand-picked selection of books and teaching materials that educate, inform, and entertain while uniquely maintaining a relentless focus on the gospel. We believe that these forgotten doctrines and their scriptural emphases can not only enrich individual Christians and revive the church, but also address the deepest needs of our culture. Discover our growing library of resources by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt of the White Horse Inn radio program, including his powerful address, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church, available exclusively at NewReformationPress.com. Or the big picture audio presentation, Bible in an Hour, by Pastor Wade Butler. Learn the center and scope of redemptive history and scripture in just one hour. And of course, be sure not to miss our selection of t-shirts, gifts, and artwork as well. 
NewReformationPress.com. Finally, Reformation Theology Made Accessible. All right, we're back. We're in the middle of a sermon review. I picked this one because it uh, starts off with a verse, but the pastor doesn't really tell us what God's Word says. He kind of baptized it with a passage from Genesis, but then went off on some bizarre tangent. Well, let's let's continue with the tangent here. Um, this is uh, a sermon on mastering my emotional monsters by uh, David Foster, and uh, we'll continue here. This was the sermon preached for October fifth, two thousand and eight. If you're a reactor that way, that explains a lot of your spending patterns and your and, and your reaction patterns and, and how you work and why you don't work anywhere very long. Here's a second choice. You say, well, Dave, I am an acting, feeling, thinking person, which makes you basically a robot. I just do what I'm told. Just do the right thing. Uh, okay, so just so you know, the the, ser- the notes here for the sermon basically say uh, he started off by identifying which type of person you are. You could either be a feeling, acting, thinking person, um, which means you're governed by your emotions, or that means you're a reactor, you know, think of nuclear reactor, or you are an acting, feeling, thinking person, which means you're a robot. Um, and then the next category we'll get to is the, the thinking, acting, feeling person. You know, so, but I I don't see these categories in God's word, and uh, I, I'm I'm struggling here. You know, he started off by reading from Genesis. But now we're off on this other stuff here. And just point me right direction, give me five things, and I'll get it done. You're more robotic in your life, and that's okay as long as the systems and the processes by which you live your life are stable. And we're living in a culture and a time when those systems are anything but stable, right? Right. They're changing. They're going up and down. And those of us who lived a while understand we're going through business cycles like we've always gone through business cycles. And we're going to come out on the other side, okay, depending on our ability to bear the image of God in this third way. And here's the third way. To be thinking, acting, feeling, image bearers, persons. Okay, so we're supposed to be... Thinking, acting, feeling, image bearers. Can you point me to a passage of scripture that says I need to be a thinking, acting, feeling image bearer? Why are you preferring this particular type of image bearing over others? I mean, I I don't understand. Can you give me some biblical proof for this, Pastor? This is how God created us. To think to act on the basis of what is right and true, and then our feelings become the reward. They're like the, the, the banana split. They're like the, you know, they're like the Twinkie. They're like the, your mom's apple pie. But what do we want to do? We want to eat dessert first, right? But here's the so thing. my emotions are like Twinkies? Maybe that's why I'm fat. Never mind. You will 
Never, ever, 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 ever feel your way into doing the right thing. You will act your, you will think your way into acting the right way. And when you think the right way and act the right way, you will feel the way you want to. Here's the deal. When you, is anyone else finding this confusing? I mean, don't you think a Bible verse would help here? Maybe more than a verse like, you know, a book, a chapter, something. I mean, this is all, I mean, maybe it's true. Maybe what he's saying is truth. I mean, I don't know. I don't have a degree in psychology. Maybe what he's telling us is true information. But when was the last time you went to church and your pastor gave you a lecture on astrophysics? No, seriously. I mean, you you can open up a textbook on astrophysics and begin teaching. And you know what? Everything that you would learn would be true, wouldn't it? Second law of thermodynamics, E equals MC squared. You know, you, you could talk about, you know, the Kelvin scale of temperature and talk about absolute zero. You can talk about, you know, uh, just about any topic. You know, how how many millions of miles away the moon is. I mean, that's all truth, isn't it? How, co- how come he's favoring psychology over... Uh, something, uh, a history lesson on uh, on Caesar and the Gallic Wars. I mean, that's all true too, isn't it? I mean, he could talk about just about anything that's true. I mean, he could talk about politics. Well, there's no truth there. Anyway, you, you, I think you get what I'm saying. I mean, he's giving us stuff that may be true, but who cares? This is supposed to be a church, isn't it? I mean, he is a pastor, isn't he? As you should, you will feel like you want. Say that with me. When I act as I should, I will feel like I want. Say it again. When I act like I should, I will feel like I want. And you need to under- You're kidding me. He, he's having us memorize these pithy little psychology statements? I'm good enough and I'm smart enough and... Gosh darn, people like me. This is hardwired into your DNA. It is your image-bearing capacity of God, and it doesn't work any other way. You can't hide from it. You can't run from it. It is who you are. You can either live by it according to God's design, or you... Okay, okay. well, um, you just said it's God's design, but you haven't proven that that's the case. I mean, maybe this is a better way to live. I don't know. But, I mean, you haven't made any biblical case for one type of thing over another. Maybe maybe diversity is the way God intended it. I don't know. What does the Bible say here, Pastor? Violate it to your own demise. Now, all right, here's here I am. I My emotions are a gift from God. They're a part of the image-bearing capacity that God has given me when he made me a living being. I have the capacity to think and act and then feel, all right? Now, the question is this. How do I begin to tell my emotions how I want them to feel, to train them, to make them respond in the right way. And here's what you have to do. You have to do something. You have to take responsibility, take control, and act. 
Now, here's one of the criticisms that a lot of people have, particularly today. In the, we're in the middle of a financial crisis, and we're trying to get bailed out. Isn't that by itself? Can, can any of you people imagine Jesus preaching on this topic? No, I, I'm serious. Jesus ascends to the you know ascends to the on the mountain. His ga- his disciples gather around them, and Jesus says. Are you a feeling, acting, thinking person, or are you an acting, feeling, thinking person? But don't you know that God's design for you is to be a thinking, acting, feeling person? And you go against this to your own demise. Uh, Or, you know, let's say it's Pentecost Sunday, the disciples are in the upper room, the Holy Spirit falls on them with tongues of fire, and they begin speaking in, uh, in tongues, proclaiming the wonders of psychology. It doesn't make any sense. Why is he preaching on emotional monsters? Where is this in the Bible? Is this a real theme of Scripture? Seriously. A hint of how we are. We don't want to get it fixed. We want a bailout. And we don't care whether the bailout last 10 months. We just want to get it bailed out. Now, I want to be bailed out. I want my stocks to go up and my gas to go down. Amen? Absolutely. I want somebody to go and tell TVA, take back the rate increase. Take back the rate increase. Take... Whatever. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. Whatever. You see, we are emotional beings. And God says, you know what? Emotion is a good thing, but it ought to be the servant of the right thing. And when you start behaving the way you you were designed to behave and live the way God created you to live, you'll start feeling the way God created you to feel. And what are all these feelings? Joy, peace, happiness, a deep sense of well-being, of fulfillment. All those wonderful feelings that we want to dominate our daily routine. Uh, wait a second. This sermon's about getting to a particular set of feelings? He, he already called them Twinkies. So this is about figuring out how to get the most from your emotions? I wonder if my my feelings are really Twinkies. Mine would actually be kind of a steak and egg burrito with a little bit of Tabasco. Lots of cheese, lots and lots and lots of cheese. And, oh, I'm sorry. How do you do it? You have to work at it. Michael Phelps, you know, has been celebrated for his ability to swim, his endurance. But one of the most amazing features of his life has been highlighted over the summer is his ability to eat. I mean, that's really sad. Isn't it? You train and train and train and train. What do people want to say? How much do you eat? Because we all want to eat that way, right? But here's the deal. You can only eat 8,000 calories if you expend 8,000 calories. Well, now there's some biblical advice, right? Fat. Right? Fat is not a disease. It's eating more than we use, right? It's a choice, right? You say, well, it isn't a choice for me. It's my thyroid. Okay, then you know what? If that works for you, just go ahead and pop the pill. I don't care, you know, whatever it may be. I don't know. But in my case, it's as I choose to eat, right? And I either choose to exercise or keep the food around for a while in the form of excess baggage. 
Emotions are the very same way. You can go out and stimulate yourself. That's why in America we are in so much trouble financially. This is not brain surgery. Neither is preaching God's word. Open up the book. Start reading. Tell us what the passage means. You know, what's interesting about this, you know, sitting here listening, going, you know, why do, why do I keep putting myself through this torture? And I guess putting you guys through it, too. Last last Friday, we had the torture of listening to Patricia King go on and on and on and on, supposedly, you know, opening up God's word to us. And this is a woman who has completely gone off the deep end regarding so-called spiritual signs and wonders and, and, and the glory in this new direct revelation from God. And... It's not hard to spot spot the problem there. All you got to do is really open up your Bible. But then somebody like David Foster comes along, and it's he's giving you practical advice. And what he's done is he's gone off the deep end just as badly as Patricia King, but rather with rather than doing it with the Holy Spirit signs and wonders, he's doing it with do goodism and making the world a better place and giving people practical advice on how to make their lives better. And in other words, this is just pop psychology and self-help that he's baptized uh with uh with a verse or two. And you know what's funny is, is do you know if you go to davefoster.tv, that's his blog, davefoster.tv. I'll put a link up there at fightingforthefaith.com. Dave Foster his his uh, slogan, his motto is Live free, have fun, and change the world. And this is a pastor. Live free, have fun, and change the world. Um, well, what about um, preaching Christ and him crucified? Why is that not what's going on here? And how can you call this a church? Maybe it's rightly called the gathering. Maybe we shouldn't consider the gathering to be a church. Maybe we shouldn't consider Dave Foster to be a pastor because, I mean... He's not really exegeting God's word here. He's just taking some stuff that he learned about pop psychology and is giving it to you, you know, in a sermon-ish kind of way. Where are we going to a brand new series this morning called... Uh, Wait a second here. Let's go back to... uh, Here we go. You don't deserve a mortgage and a house if you can't afford it. You don't. Then you come in the Bible. You just don't. They're, they just said amen to that. <laughs> oh, that's what they say amen to. Oh, man. And you know what? There is no joy in living in a home you have not worked and scraped and saved to earn. Oh, I don't know. This is how God made you and made me. We need to discipline ourselves. And when we discipline ourselves, there are rich benefits, right? So when I act the way I should, I will feel the way I want. Say one more time. When I act the way I should, I will feel the way I want. Now let's make... Oh, good night, law. This is a misuse of the law, by the way. I mean, that's the best way you can put it. I mean, this is just law. These things you do and then you experience... A better feelings and more satisfaction, peace, and whatever. Practical application in these areas. Number one, the first thing I've got to do is bully my body. I got to bully my body. Your body, do anybody here, does your body talk to you? You know what I mean? My body's talking to me constantly. 
Is it already time to get up? I mean, I hate waking up when it's still dark, don't you? I mean, I don't know. I get up at 3.30 just so long there's some light. Oh, my body just says, you know, I want to sleep just a little bit longer. You know, my body says, take the elevator. If God didn't want you to take an elevator, he wouldn't have invented one. <laughs> don't walk up the stairs. <sighs> Park close to the door. That parking lot over there, take the handicap. That one over there is another hundred yards. I don't want to walk. Give me a chair. I want to sit down. Give me a menu. I want the buffet. I want to go get it for me. Oh, give me a hammer. I'm going to hit myself in the head. Oh, man. Here, your body is lazy. Your body is lazy. It will choose the least path of resistance if you... All right, let's talk about this for a second. Hey, Pastor, you know, you're talking about our bodies being lazy and taking the least path of resistance. This will be a good time for you to actually mention sin. Sin. You've heard of it? S-I-N. You know, that we are sinful by nature, that we rebel against God and, and his ways, that we do our own thing. Wouldn't this be a great place for you to bring up sin? I'm, but you're not really doing it that way, are you? Because you're not really addressing sin as sin, because that wouldn't draw a crowd, would it? Just an observation. But if you demand more from it, here's the amazing thing. It will come to attention. And it will obey. It will do what you tell it to do. But guess what? It's not easy. You gotta tell it to do something. You gotta say, get out of bed. No, get out of bed. Get out of bed. Foot, get out of bed. I got a pitching wedge. Get out of bed. Okay. <sighs> and your other leg goes, you know, why did I, you know, I have to get out of bed? He's already out of bed. Right? You think this is silly. No, it's not. Right here it is. Like an athlete, I punish my body, treating it roughly, training it to do what it should do, not what it wants to do. If you allow your body to do... Yeah, by the way, that was, an actual, that was actually a sneaky little verse that he put in there. Um, I wonder if I can find this. It's, it's from one of the uh, Pauline epistles. Um, mm, yeah. Can I have, I'm not finding it. While he's talking, I'll go back and find it. Let's let's continue. What it wants to do, it will always invariably move to one of two places, atrophy or disease. But if you demand more from it, if you if you discipline it, if you say no to it, if you demand that it exercise and demand that it do the right thing, it will respond and it will benefit you by longer life, healthier life, and a greater sense of well-being. Really, and this is what Christianity has to offer humanity, is just a better life and better sense of well-being? Come on, Pastor. That's not Christianity. In fact, this isn't Christianity. This is something completely different. And this is not what pastors are called to preach. They're called to preach Christ and Him crucified. But we're not hearing that. We're just hearing pretty much just good advice but you can get that anywhere you'll be able to walk up straight I, i'm amazed the number of men my age who walk like this 
We just want, I'm like, you know, I don't understand. I'm not making any judgment, but I'm just telling you the older, I see people who are in their eighties who are still running marathons and triathlons and all these other things. Your body is an amazing gift from God. Bully it, tell it what to do and it will do it. But you got to exert a little effort. You can't be a feeling, acting, thinking person. So here's the second thing. Okay, you can't you can't be a feeling, acting, thinking person. That's for sure, because I don't know why, but because uh, the Bible hasn't really been brought to to teach this. He's just said that you can't do that. By the way, the verse that he was referring to is from First uh, Corinthians chapter nine, verse twenty-seven, where Paul says, "I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I sh- myself should be disqualified." Um, this has to do with, uh, running the Christian race, if you would, uh, first Corinthians nine twenty four says, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises, uh, self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. This is about keeping sin under control. Oh, man, Pastor, you could, you, it'd be nice if you actually mentioned that. Master my motivation. Every person you meet tomorrow has an inner motivation. There are basically five motiv- master motivations. Here they are. You want to write them down? They're not on your own. Okay, outline. he's going to give us five master motivations. Uh, can you give us a chapter and verse for the five master motivations, Pastor, since you're supposed to be preaching God's Word? One, the first one is survival. That's why people at work will stab you in the back. If they, That's found in the book of Hezekiah. If they feel like their job is threatened, it's survival. You can say, well, there's sorry pieces of, okay, but you know what? That doesn't change anything, does it? It just expands, it just contracts your vocabulary. If people are feel like that their job is in stake or if their survival is threatened, they will behave and motivate that way. Pa- uh, uh, fear, survival, fear. People, if they're motivated by fear in our culture today, we're constantly motivated by fear. Everybody's afraid. The stock market goes up. Yeah, that's in the book of Phobia. The basis of fear. Gas goes into up and down on the basis of fear. When we went through this gas shortage, it was because everybody was afraid and we had to go fill up 75 times a day, you know, and act like a bunch of children. Okay, thank you very much. You live in the same world I am. So here's the deal. You have to learn what the motivation is. Is it survival? Is it fear? Is it power? I want power of you, or is it pain? I want to avoid the pain and get away from the pain. Or the fifth master motivation, which is the motivation that we see when we understand who God is and what he does in our world, and that's the motivation of love. Okay, stop for a second. Uh, Pastor, if you really love these people, if that was really your motivation, then why aren't you preaching Christ and him crucified? I mean, don't you love them enough to tell them the truth of what the Bible teaches, of what the Bible proclaims, that in Christ... There is salvation. In fact, there's salvation in no one else except for Christ. Why aren't you telling them that? Why aren't you telling them about their sins? Why aren't you preaching the law in a way to convict people of their sins so that you can give them the real message, the message of Christ? If you say you talk about these these motivations, you know, fear, pain, power, you know, and whatever, um, 
I don't even know where they're from. And you say that the number one motivation that we should be working from is a motivation of love. My question is, why don't you love your sheep enough to tell them the truth? Why are you doing this? Why are you preaching these feel-good, self-help, pop psychology sermons rather than actually preaching God's word? I'm curious, if you really love these people, wouldn't you be telling them the truth? It just makes sense to me. I said this a couple of weeks ago. If you remember, I said God will always do the most loving and generous thing. Say that with me. God will always do the most loving and generous thing, period, all the time. You say, why is that important? Because sometimes the circumstances and the evidence will be absolutely 180 degrees in defiance of that statement. When babies die, the evidence is in defiance of that statement. How can that be true? How can that be good? How can that be right? When someone you love gets cancer, maybe you have cancer and you're dealing with cancer right now, and you say there's no way that can be fair, no way that can be just, and you're exactly right. But God will always do the most loving and generous thing, yes or no. And if it's yes, it will see you through. It will become your motivation. My motivation is the motivation of love. And if I bully my body and bring in a submission so that I may do the most loving things at loving thing at all times, then I am what God created me to be, a thinking, acting, feeling person. Uh, chapter and verse again. Chapter and verse. Bible passages would be helpful at this point. Um, I mean, basically, you're just basically saying that, you know, we God will always do the most loving thing, and you pretty much define that as God's the wind beneath our wings. But uh, this sermon, it really is turning out to be nothing more than the wind beneath my seat. Um, hello? Um, any any more scripture here, Pastor? Bully my body, master my motivation. Third, here's a biggie when it comes to emotions. I will watch my words. Here's what I've learned. We forget what's done to us long before we forget what's been said to us. Words are powerful things. They can dominate or they can devastate. And I must learn how to use the most loving, generous words. But I tell you that men will give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. Those are the words of Jesus. Jesus gives us a warning. You know what's funny, uh, Pastor, is that Jesus actually warns teachers. You know, to not you know, don't be a teacher lightly because your judgment will actually be stricter and more difficult than the layperson. And talk about reckless words. You know, you're speaking lots of words here. And uh, you're not preaching Christ and Him crucified. You're not really giving us information that will help us, really, in the long run. I mean, I could get this stuff from Dr. Phil. I could get this stuff from Oprah. I could get this stuff from, stuff from Anthony Robbins. I can get it from my psychologist. I can get it from a good counseling session. I could get this stuff anywhere Anywhere, it's so common, it's ridiculous. But when people go to church, they don't go to church to get the stuff that they would get from Oprah. They go to church to get to hear from God. And if we're going to go and hear from God and to feed on His words, then we need to hear what God really has to say. And you're just taking it out of context. And, and you know, I don't know what this has to do with the Bible at all. Why did you even bring God into this? I mean, is, is, did you do it out of obligation because you're supposed to be a pastor? I'm serious. 
here is something really important. So write this down, put it in your mind, tattoo it to your brain. Here it is. God gave us the power to speak, not so that we could be right, but so that we could be close. Huh? I'm going to just tell you something. Uh, Can you give us a chapter and verse on that one, please? I mean, I'm kind of getting frustrated asking the same question, but I mean, you're making all these truth statements, but I don't see what you're saying from God's word. Particularly, if you want to use your words to be right, you will be miserable. If you want to use your words to be close, you will be happy. I'm a- well, not exactly. I use my words to be right. But the thing is, it's not truth isn't my truth. I can just point out what the truth is. And I'm quite happy within my skin. All 50 acres of it. Watch my words. I must master my motivation. I must bully my body. We're going to go back through these all the way through this eight-week series constantly and making application to the different emotional monsters we're going to deal with. Here's the next one. I must, 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 must manage my money. Money is not as big a, uh, as big a uh, mystery as we may think. Here's the bottom line. Money is amoral. It's neither good nor bad. Again, like emotions, money is a wonderful servant, a horrible master. Listen to what the scriptures say. For the love of money is the first step toward all kinds of sin. Some people have turned away from God because of their love for it. And as a result, have pierced themselves with many, what? Sorrows. Sorrows. How many people during this debacle has have they gone through the humiliation of losing their house, losing their car, losing their job, going into bankruptcy? All those are humiliating things, but everyone can come back from that if they learn the lesson that money is is amoral and money is a risk. Okay, he's proof texting again. I mean, are we really learning what God's word says? Are we really learning it? Or is he just popcorn popping, you know, here to this verse, then there to that verse? And, you know, because he came up with this list here, we've got six things that we, we, you know, six musts of emotional strength. Okay. And we're we're into the fourth one now. Emotional strength takes us to bully our bodies, master our emotions, Watch our words and now manage our money. <sighs> How many money management sermons did Jesus preach? I mean, seriously, where he gave good financial advice. I mean, Jesus wasn't exactly, um, you know, I made this point before and I'll make it again, is that, you know, Jesus wasn't exactly the wealthiest man on the planet. You know, one time when he had to pay his taxes, he sent Peter fishing and said, grab the money out of its mouth so we can pay our taxes. <laughs> oh, man. Responsibility and money is a servant. And the very best thing you can do with it is earn it, save it, give it, and stay out of debt. Well, I got all of this advice from my grandfather. And my parents. I mean, it's great advice. But what does this have to do with the scripture? There you go. I just put Ramsey out of business. 
What's the very best thing you can do with money? Earn it, save it, give it, stay out of debt. Here's a one of, I got to tell you, this is one of the great things about emotions. If you, if you, I was raised going into debt for everything. Were you? Man, I never, nobody taught me anything. I bought, I, I, I was sitting on finance furniture. Buying finance tires. How dumb is that from Kentucky? That's not terribly dumb. But when you get outside the borders of that state, that's profoundly ignorant. <laughs> it would all be a good place. Everybody else you know has got a car. Bum a ride. Okay, sorry. <laughs> but when I discovered the fact that, you know what, a paid-for PFC car, paid-for car, Rides just as good as a finance. I saw, remember a week ago, I said, I can't believe we're financing cars for 60 months. I saw a commercial in Nashville this week, 66 months. They ought to lock that guy up. Now, if he's here and he's a tither. You know, I wonder if he has a mortgage. I mean, okay, so now I'm supposed to feel bad because I financed my FJ Cruiser? You know, let's see, I we own the van, we own the Celica, and we just bought the Corolla, paid cash for it. But the FJ Cruiser, yeah, I, I, I'm, I've done bad. We're, you know, we're, jeez, we're 24 months into a 60-month financing on it. I must have done something wrong. But then again, I can afford my payments, and my family isn't on the street, and we're not... We're not in trouble. Uh, I how how is that mismanaging my money? I, I'd like to know. I didn't mean that. <laughs> Sorry. So, but back to back, back to my point. Sorry, that's straight. Here's the great thing about emotion. And let's just to say that you're in debt and you got to manage your money because this is really emotional deal. Okay. Here's a great thing. If you make a decision today to say, you know what, from this day forward, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, my goals become debt free. I'm gonna earn it, save it, give it, stay out of debt. Amen. Okay. 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 Why should I do that? Why? Why? Sh- I'm serious. Why should I do that? I'm a business owner. Debt's not a bad thing necessarily when I'm running business, and I'm in debt as far as my my house is concerned. Is he basically saying that everybody in his congregation, that none of them can have a mortgage? Can you show me in the Bible where it says that, Pastor? Here's the thing about your emotions. Your emotions will immediately, after you act, take a few steps to act. Let's just say you've got a, a credit card debt of $350, and you get that paid off by this time next month. Your emotions, and you may be a long way from being debt-free, but here's what's happened. Your emotions, after a few right steps, will start rewarding you with some really great feelings. So what? Where is this in the Bible? That's a great thing about emotion. For example, you say, you say, here's a guy who weighs 365 pounds. He he's been rejected by Biggest Loser, but he decides to go to YMCA and he 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 he, he at the, for the benefit of all the rest of us wears appropriate clothing. Let's just say he, you know, he's down about three, you know, he's lost about 30, 40 pounds. Guess what he will start doing? I'm telling you, in God's name, it's just true. He will start wearing spandex. What? Way too early. Why? And you're like, anyone could tell you that's not a good decision. 
What is he telling you? My emotions are rewarding me. I feel much thinner. I think like I'm a much thinner person. I'm disciplining myself. I'm making great choices. And my emotions reward me long before I ever get to the destination. Yay, God. That's why, and this is a little bonus, this is free, I won't charge you for this. If your marriage is in crisis right now, call a time out and say for three days, we're going to act like nice people. We're not going to worry about all the stuff. It will still be there after three days, but for three days, we're going to be nice to each other. It is absolutely amazing how your emotions will come back and start responding when you do that. Amen. Uh-huh. All right, so I will bully my body, master my motivation, watch my words, manage my money. I will take control of my time. Time is life. It is your life. It is the one thing that you have been given that you can control. You must manage your agenda, manage your, your time. It's, it's more important than your money. As a matter of fact, if I take away all your money, you can get it back. But if I waste your time... I damage eternity. Oh, man. So uh, uh, I've got to go get a day planner, and I've got to get out of debt, and I need to bully my body, master my motivation, and watch my words. This is the kind of stuff that will leave you depressed because there's, you know that you don't do this stuff. You know that you don't bully your body. You don't. You know you don't master your motivations. You know you don't watch your words, and you know that you're guilty of not managing your money. And you know you're not. You're guilty of not taking control of your time. You think the solution is that you're just going to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and try harder? Is that the solution offered in Scripture? Just try harder and do these things, and you'll get twinky feelings for a reward. Or is the solution Christ and Him crucified? Because every time you fall down in any of these areas, you uh, you're sinning. Isn't that really the real problem? So here's what you're gonna have to do: you're gonna have to stop wasting your time on things that don't matter, that don't move you forward, that don't make you feel rested, that don't make you. There's not a sense of rhythm that doesn't contribute to your life or anyone else. Wasting your time on porn sites. Oh, come on. Get off. Come on, stop that. Because you know what? You are becoming your dominant thoughts. Amen? Oh, I thought he was talking about time management. I didn't realize he was talking about porn. That's the seventh point that he just snuck in there, by the way. Yes, Dave, you are. And the fact that you have a secure self-worth doesn't matter the fact that they just snubbed you because you said, porn site. Okay. I've never, I don't even know what a porn site is, you liar dog. You gotta keep, get you. All right, let's just go into the last one. Nobody liked that one very much. I'm gonna bully my body, master my motivation. I'm gonna watch my words and manage my money. I'm gonna take control of my time. It is mine, no one else's. And I'm going to refrain. Or retrain or restrain, whatever reword you like, my responses. I am not going to be a reactor. I want to be a responder. I can't uh. control what's happened to me, but I'm always in control about how I respond to what's happened to me. Amen? Yeah, I wasn't really in control of what you were going to preach. And, uh, you know, so um, I'm responding to it and basically going, hey, where's God? Uh, God's word here, pastor. 
Dr. Phil, Oprah. That was created into us. That is a part of the image of God in us. We can make better choices. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but be a new and different person with a fresh perspective and newness in all you do and think. Well, that sounds biblical. Well, I'm going to have to find this one now. I'm going to put renew and see if I can find it. Uh, here we go. It's Romans 12. Romans 12, 2. Let me read it from a real translation because I, th- I, I get a sneaking suspicion he was uh, using the message there. Uh, Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. So writing to uh, Christians, by the mercies of God, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. In other words, in light of everything that we were just talking about in the previous 11 chapters, Paul basically focusing on Christ and him crucified and justification by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone, says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What is it that uh, renews our mind is probably the next logical question. And uh, the, the answer to that is God's word. Okay, God's word is, is how our minds are renewed by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Ephesians 4.23, let me read it in context, is a great cross-reference to this passage here. Oh, let's see. Um, Let's see, I want to show all text (laughs) using my computer Bible on the road here. And it says, uh, uh, let me grab this, Ephesians 4, starting in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding and they are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. They have become callous and have given themselves over to sensuality, greedy, uh, greed to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and it is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Okay? So, you know, these are this idea of being renewed in our minds is absolutely in scripture and is and we're renewed in our minds through God's word. God's word. And we're not getting much of that in this sermon. Then you will learn from your own what? Experiences how his ways will really what? Satisfy you. We have this idea that what God God gives ten commandments. There's only ten. There could have been ten hundred. Only ten, these ten most negative words, you know. I love that guy with all heart, mind, and soul because everyone else is an apostle will suck you dry. That's huh? a tough one, isn't it? I'm the only one who's ever really loved you and always respond to you in generosity and love and has your highest good as his highest gain. But no, 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 let's not worship God. That's, that's, that's obtrusive. Let's don't have religion in the public square. Let's, let's not have religion at church either, apparently. I mean, you're complaining about religion not being in the public squ- square? Um, I don't I don't 
hear religion at your church. This is pop psychology. This isn't Christianity. It's, it's something, but it's not Christianity, nor is it Christian doctrine. Christian brothers and sisters, brothers from another mother, Ugh. sisters from another mister. Christianity may be personal, but it is never private. I really am. I'm just, I'm, I'm starting, I'm deciding I'm going to go on the offensive about this whole movement in America. We don't need to go to church. We can just get together and have church together. Let's just get together and listen to Pastor Dave online and have a cappuccino and pray. <laughs> Fill in the blanks. Here's why you're wrong. It is never either or with God. Should we have small groups and should we get together and should we form great friendships? Absolutely. But God demands that we worship him together in public. Uh, actually, God's word demands that you devote yourself to the public reading and preaching of God's word. And you're supposed to preach the word in season and out of season. Um, why are you not doing that part? Why are you focusing on this other thing? to the exclusion of other clear passages of Scripture regarding your responsibilities, Pastor. Because God and Christianity must stay relevant in the public square. How else would anyone know that it's there and it can solve our problems as it has solved our problems in the past? What? How? Okay, how the Christianity is not about problem solving. That's not the main focus and thrust of Christianity. It's it's not. In fact, becoming a Christian might cause a lot more problems for you. You might end up dead. <sighs> I'm sick of people saying, "Well, man, your faith is really private." No, it is not. It is personal. Does anything reprise? I tell you why. Because what you believe about God and how you're made is how you'll behave when it comes to me, whether or not you will cheat me or treat me fairly. So this whole idea, you know, of of the the vice president and the president and all of our candidates being asked religious people, you shouldn't do that. Well, why in God's name not? I mean, I don't care what deodorant they use. I want to know what their worldview is. I want to know if they believe that there is any such thing as ethics. Are there things that are right? And if we live that way, is the benefit of doing what is right in the sight of God a blessing? Um, well, actually, uh, this is a good opportunity to talk about the nature of the law. And if you kept God's law perfectly, then all the blessings that would go with keeping the law are yours. But because none of us do... All of us, including myself, we're sinners. We don't do what we're supposed to do. As a result of it, we are under God's condemnation, and rightly so. And no amount of good law-keeping and ethics is going to save our sorry carcasses from the fires of hell. It's only Jesus Christ. How come Jesus, so far in this message, has only shown up to warn us? <sighs> to warn us against not following these six musts of emotional strength that are really not in the Bible. Is it or is it not? If it is, then that's the answer to the crisis we're in. 
America needs to come back to church. Here's what we need to do. I'm, I know I'm just preaching a little bit, but I got a minute. I'm like, uh, it's 29 minutes. It's like, oh my gosh, I've never been this short in my life. So I'm like, okay. We need to have a revival in America. Oh, I, I agree. And the way we're going to start is by is by being penitent and getting on our knees and praying for God's mercy and forgiveness for tolerating self-help and pop psychology sermons and calling it church. So we want revival. What we're gonna we're gonna start with by, we're gonna start by putting sackcloth and ashes on ourselves and being in mourning and penitence for our wickedness of changing God's church into a place where people get pop psychology tips. That's where we'll start. Churches, the shame-bound churches, need to die. What? And be sold for 7-Elevens or Chuck E. Cheese or, you know, Academy Sports or something. I don't know. But all the churches who believe that God is good, that His Word is true, that He is motivated toward love, that the only salvation this world has is in the redemptive, restored, and reconciling love of Jesus Christ, need to go out and call people to come out of their apartments and their houses and their hamlets around their little cups of coffee and join together in all the public spaces and lift up our voice and say, There is a God. He is here. He is hacked. Oh, I agree. God is hacked that you're not preaching his word and calling it church. I agree. God is completely hacked. Very upset. Very angry. Very mad. And you you claim that you believe in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Then why are you giving us all of this law as if that's what Christianity is about? Isn't it about Christ? Christianity? Will not withhold. He will not withhold. He will not withhold the results that he has warned us would come upon us if we ignore him and disobey him. All right, here we go. Law, good. All right, this, this, you're using the law lawfully here. Let's see, you know, what about all the people who don't bully their bodies, master their emotions, watch their words, manage their money, take control of their time, and restrain their responses? You told everyone that's the solution to mastering their emotions. All the things that they're supposed to do. You gave no real biblical proof for any of this. And yet you're going on about church and God being hacked and because we're not doing what we're supposed to do. But the thing is, Pastor, you're not doing what you're supposed to do. Don't you have a problem with that? I do. I have a good buddy. You know, and he called me the other day. He said, man, I'm in deep trouble. And he told me what the trouble is. He said, man, pray that God will get me out. And I have to tell you, I did not have the courage to say... I'm going to say it here because it's the coward's way. <laughs> you need to get the girl you're living out out of your bed. And then we can talk. We have this idea that we can just glibly say, you know what, I'm a Christian and you just live any old way our emotions dictate and ask God to bless us. Well, aren't you doing the same thing, Pastor? You, you're acting like you can preach just about any old thing you want to preach about. Mastering your emotions, going the extra going the extra mile, rising to challenges, and giving us pop psychology, and your feelings make you feel like you're preaching God's word, but there's not enough scripture in your in your sermons to fill a gnat's navel. I don't understand the disconnect here. Christ says, "Feed my sheep." 
Paul says, preach the word in season and out of season. You're not doing that. You know, what the, you know what we need to be doing? Here's what we need to be doing. We need to be filling up our churches, our alive, and there are a lot of wonderful alive churches full of great, happy people. And we need to fill them up and do what the Bible says. If my people are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and repent. I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. But the future of this country is not on the White House, but upon God's house and your house and my house. Well, great. Then why aren't you preaching God's word? Why? Why? Why this pop psychology? Why this self-help? Why just scant little verses here and there? Why don't you tell us what the Bible actually says, pastor? You're complaining and you're saying that the solution for America is God's house, but your church isn't. Amen. Amen. All right, I've used up all my extra time. Let's pray. Father. All right, we're done. Anyway, I took you through the whole sermon there because I wanted you to see that. I wanted you to listen and experience it and really get a good taste for what's missing here. He's sitting here complaining and saying that there's something wrong in the nation and that God's house is the solution, and yet he talks about churches that are where happy people are attending, yet he preaches only the law and not the gospel. And he preaches pop psychology, you know, calling it the law is like being generous because, I mean, these were just proof texted verses at best, and it really wasn't preaching God's word. So, um, yeah, I think that we need to, uh, (laughs) we need revival in the land. We start by repenting of sermons and churches like that one. Anyway, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebrown. If you'd like to email me and let me know why it's okay to uh, preach pop psychology Sunday after Sunday and call it church, you can do so. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. Until next time, may God bless you. <laughs>